Coming up next, Upstate's HealthLink on air. On this week's program, early detection may be the key to treating eating disorders. It's hard to develop a true prevention program, but identifying someone with an eating disorder early on in adolescence is very important if they get appropriate treatment. Plus, what to do when a loved one has addiction problems. If our child is an alcohol-addicted person or a drug-addicted person, that means we've been a bad parent. I don't buy that. That's a way to blame yourself and target yourself rather than deal with the problem. And a landmark research effort into Alzheimer's disease. I think that there will be effective treatments developed within the next decade. I'm quite optimistic about that. We are seeing some early signs and some effective treatments right now. All that and a selection from our healing muse, and that's all coming up right after the news. This is Upstate Medical University's HealthLink on Air, your weekly dose of information about health and medical issues affecting Central New Yorkers from the region's only academic medical center. I'm your host, Linda Cohen. On this week's show, we learn what to do when a loved one has addiction problems. Plus, we'll find out about a landmark research effort into Alzheimer's disease. But first, an update on eating disorders. Well, with the growth of eating disorders in teens, both male and female, there have been many who have asserted that this is simply due to lifestyle choices rather than representing a true disease entity. Well, here with more on all of this is Dr. Jack Wohlers. He's the CEO and clinical director of Center Syracuse. It's a program for treating adults and adolescents with eating disorders. Welcome, Dr. Wohlers. Thanks so much for coming in. Thank you, Linda. So when we talk, when we use the term eating disorder, just help us understand, what do we actually mean? Well, for the purposes this morning, we'll be talking about uh, three diagnostic categories, anorexia nervosa, bulimia nervosa, and binge eating disorder, which has been added in the DSM-5 as a eating disorder diagnosis. So the whole idea of them being labeled as disorders, because you just mentioned them as disorders, I mean, is there any truth to the idea that this is a choice as opposed to a true disorder? No, it's not a choice. Uh, Unfortunately, it may be looked at that way, and I think that's unfortunate. But um, actually, the the way that I conceive of an eating disorder is it's a way of coping. It's a strategy for dealing with uh, stress, uh, life changes, um, it, actually, the, the, the time frames uh, developmentally when someone is likely to develop an eating disorder is the transition from childhood to adolescence, nine, maybe 10 to 13, and when uh, the adolescent is leaving home, maybe 17 to 21. Uh, uh, at those points in life, developmentally, there's a lot going on, and this is viewed as a way of coping with that. So let's talk about the different types, because you alluded to three different types, which are the main kind of uh, categories within this larger category of eating disorders. When we say anorexia nervosa, what are we talking about? What does it actually mean? We're talking about uh, an individual, and truthfully, there are many more women than men uh, with anorexia nervosa, an individual who... um, again, uh, looking for a way to cope, will restrict, will diet, uh, will lose significant amounts of weight. In the process, uh, they are they have a fear of gaining weight uh, and have difficulty perceiving themselves accurately in terms of their own body shape and size. So they may have a, what they call a body dysmorphia in the sense that they don't really see? Now, well, body dysmorphia is a little different. Body okay. dysmorphia is when someone focuses on a particular part or aspect of their okay. body. Uh, with uh, anorexia nervosa, it's uh, it's a, a, way, a number on a scale, um, uh, or in some cases, the size of clothing that they wear, that they need to become thinner. So the symptoms are basically they restrict their eating, they diet heavily, and an intense... Exercise. Um, there's a subgroup of uh, women with anorexia nervosa who are binging and purging, which makes sense in some ways because biologically it's very hard to starve yourself uh, for a long period of time. Eventually, uh, women will start binge eating, and then they compensate by 
uh, by purging, usually vomiting. So is that what's called bulimia nervosa? No, no. actually, actually, this is called anorexia nervosa uh, subgroup uh, binging and purging subtype. Bulimia nervosa is uh, again there aren't as many weight criteria. Uh, someone with bulimia nervosa may be in normal weight, may be overweight, may be maybe uh, slightly underweight. Uh, but again, the, uh, the focus is on binge eating. Binge eating means eating a very large quantity of food for, for an individual that age and gender. Um, and uh, it's followed by a sense of loss of control and then some form of compensation. Vomiting, laxatives, uh, exercising. Um, so binging and purging, basically. Yeah, binging and purging. Yeah. And... and how about binge eating disorder as an isolated issue? That's different than bulimia it, it nervosa? It is, it is. And, and, and the binge eating, including that in the diagnostic criteria, actually identifies more men um, who have binge eating disorder. Essentially, the binge eating is the same as you'd find in bulimia nervosa, the same emotional side effects of that, uh, the sense of loss of control, but there's no compensatory behavior. There's no purging. Um, so hence, those people might actually be overweight. They could. It. It. Um, it. It. Uh, I'm not trying to say everyone who has a binge eating disorder ends up being overweight, uh, but uh, there's a likelihood that they could. Yes. Which of these three are most common? Well, binge eating uh, uh, disorder is very fairly common. Um, uh, the uh, bulimia nervosa is uh, perhaps next most common, and then anorexia nervosa. Uh, is probably least common. So what are the basics, you know, the signs and symptoms of any of these? In other words, how would someone recognize that someone in their life was showing signs of these problems? Well, with anorexia nervosa, uh, the, the weight loss is, is very clear. It's one of the diagnostic criteria, and um, you, you see this with somebody, even if they're trying to hide it. Uh, but other things uh, to look for are obsession with uh, with uh, weight, um, weighing oneself frequently, um, cl clearly restricting uh, calorically, um, and um, it's again pretty obvious. Bulimia nervosa is 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 a more secretive because there's a sense of shame associated with the losing control with binge eating and vomiting. Uh, it's a little harder to detect also because the weight may not be low. Um, but there, uh, dentists often have uh, an opportunity to diagnose, because, diagnose, diagnose the problem because of uh, the enamel being worn away by the stomach acids. Because uh, of the constant basic vomiting. Vomiting, causes correct. And, um, uh, uh, Do they also have other gastrointestinal problems like acid reflux, things like that that develop? Acid reflux is very common. Uh, with someone who has bulimia nervosa. If you're just joining us, you're listening to Upstate's HealthLink on air. I'm Linda Cohen, along with psychologist Dr. Jack Wohlers. We're talking about eating disorders. So go on. With binge eating disorder, is there some way that you would know or some way that, you know, what are some of the symptoms or signs? Again, uh, that is often done secretively. You don't find somebody publicly uh, binge eating. Uh, and that's probably harder to diagnose, even uh, more so than bulimia nervosa or anorexia nervosa. Um, again, uh, secretive eating, if people are not eating uh, in more public situations uh, but remain heavy, there can be uh, an in, that can be an indication that somebody is um, maybe binge eating secretively. So you mentioned earlier when we talked about risk factors and causative factors, this idea of dealing with transitions. Adults have this as well, but is that usually a carryover from an earlier developmental stage? Well, um, uh, one of the issues uh, that I really want to emphasize is it's important for early identification. Um, we, we do know um, prevention is still, because of the complexity of uh, eating disorders, the variables that contribute to someone developing an eating disorder, it's, it, it's hard to develop a true prevention program. It actually has to start probably with the family. But identifying someone with an eating disorder early on in adolescence is very important. If they get appropriate treatment, there's a, a, an 86% chance of complete recovery. As someone moves on into adulthood, 
um, that actually decreases to maybe 35 to 45 percent. Um, part of the reason is that people leave treatment. Uh, the idea of having to gain weight uh, is often frightening for someone with an eating disorder. They may leave treatment before they do regain the body weight they need. Um, but it, it's important to identify it early and get somebody into treatment. Well, getting to treatment, what have you found that actually works? I mean, this is what you do. And what's the prognosis? Well, we, As you mentioned, if it's treated early, there can yeah. be a pretty good prognosis. Treatment, treatment is effective. Treatment helps. Uh, and we know a fair amount about treatment because there's been a lot of research on what works. With bulimia nervosa, uh, outpatient treatment may actually be quite effective. Uh, outpatient treatment would include uh, consulting with a dietitian, uh, a therapist who understands eating disorders, and probably working with a primary care physician. Uh, when, the when the emphasis is upon uh, regulating eating uh, and sometimes with bulimia nervosa, uh, the antidepressants, especially if there's co-occurring uh, co uh, depression, can be helpful. Um, what type of what type of psychological treatment though is necessary? I mean, is it is this talk therapy? Is it a you know CBT cognitive behavioral therapy? What kinds it, of it's things? It's primarily work? cognitive behavioral therapy has been uh, the one approach that seems to be most effective. Now, there's again a lot of research out there. There may be other ways, other intervention strategies that may work. Uh, what seems to help most with with binge eating is again regulating one's uh, one's eating so that there aren't periods of restriction prior to the binge eating. Uh, but it also focuses on other ways of coping uh, and perceptions about one's understanding about oneself. A lot of education goes a long way in helping with bulimia. Which are the most intractable, or which is the most intractable of all of these three? Well, anorexia nervosa is is difficult to treat on an outpatient basis because uh, a major part of anorexia nervosa is refeeding, is getting somebody to eat again and to gain weight. And the problem there, of course, is that's what they're afraid of. And so I know uh, there are some therapists who believe if I just do psychotherapy um, that things will change, but um, uh, actually what you need to do is, is to refeed an anorexic. So probably a higher level of care, a partial hospital level of care, or maybe even inpatient. your offers that kind of thing. Might, uh, is usually necessary with anorexia nervosa. And often family members, especially if we're talking teenagers, family really needs to get involved. Critically you know, families don't cause eating disorders, right. but uh, it's very important to have them involved in treatment because they can go a long way in helping someone with an eating disorder. What's your take on this idea of how our society has contributed? I mean, I know we say that there, there are some hypotheses that there's some genetic component, that it runs in families, but obviously a lot has been said about the social norm here mm -hmm. and this whole idea of thin is good and, and fat is bad kind right. of thing. right. Well, I think the, um, the media gets a bad name in all of this. Um, I do think that the um, diet industry, which is a 60 to $80 billion industry, uh, contributes to um, uh, people developing eating disorders. Uh, the fashion industry, to a certain extent, may. Um, but there are many other variables. There are uh, very clearly um, genetic components to this. There, there are predispositions. Individuals may be temperamentally predisposed. Anxiety uh, is a, a key factor in somebody developing an eating disorder. The important thing is to realize it's a way of coping. And that there's hope, I think. So your, yes, there is your bottom line message is? There is hope, especially if you get treatment. Treatment does help. So I, early identification, whenever possible. The, part mm -hmm. of the problem is that if it's being hidden, it's kind of hard to find. Exactly. But early exactly. identification is really what you're saying, and mm -hmm. the fact that therapy can really work. Mm -hmm. Thanks so much for coming in. It's a very hopeful message. My guest has been Dr. Jack Wollers. He's the CEO and clini clinical director of the Center Syracuse, which is a program for treating both adolescents and adults with eating disorders. Next, 
What to do when a loved one has addiction problems. You're listening to Upstate's HealthLink on air. This is Upstate's HealthLink on air. Linda Cohen along with you. Drug and alcohol addiction crosses all socioeconomic levels and can impact any family. Whether you live in the suburbs or in the heart of a major city, drugs can take a hold of someone you love and change them. Learning to recognize the signs of a drug or alcohol problem at home can help address the problem sooner rather than later. But how to address it remains a challenge for most families. Here with more on all of this is Dr. Rich O'Neill, psychologist and a professor in the Department of Psychiatry at Upstate Medical University. Welcome. Thanks for coming in, Rich. Good morning, Linda. So first of all, help us understand that recognizing the problem is a challenge, a bit of a challenge for for some families. Explain that and, and why is it so difficult? Well, uh, let me preface that by saying there's multiple factors, and they differ from family to family and person to person. So we can talk about some general things. In general, uh, accepting anything that's painful is hard. We like, human beings like to avoid pain, right? Uh, And so accepting the fact that somebody in your family has an alcohol or drug problem is going to be a painful thing. It probably collides with the image that we have of who our family is, what our family is. It's a great family, you know. And then all of a sudden, you start to recognize that somebody in the family is not who you think they are, and they are headed on a path to destroying their life. Also, doesn't it reflect somewhat on you as a parent, if it, in, in a sense that in some sense, your ego in some sense is tied up with the success or failure of your child. Absolutely. Our, a lot of us think, you know, the way our kids go out in life really reflects on us, right? And if our child is an alcohol-addicted person or a drug-addicted person, that means we've been a bad parent. I don't buy that. That's a way to blame yourself and target yourself rather than deal with the problem rather than face, oh, this is a very big problem we have to deal with, and instead you blame yourself, rather than look outside you and say, okay, here we got a problem, what are we going to do about it, right? So we put the energy towards targeting ourselves rather than dealing with the problem. So once you've identified it as a problem, let's say yeah. you've come to grips with it, it's, it's a problem, how do you begin to decide what to do about it in terms of, you know, the process you go through? Is it, does it have something to do with the, you know, what are the considerations? Is it the age of the person, the strength of the relationship? What goes through the, you know, that process in terms of making a decision as to what to do? Uh, well, I would say probably the first thing is simply recognizing that there's a problem. And a good guideline for that is looking at whether the person is doing something that is in some way harming their life, okay? Or they're doing something that is totally inappropriate for their stage in life, like a child. Children uh, often start to drink if they're having troubles in their life, in their family, at very early ages, shockingly early ages. I've had people in my practice who tell me, yeah, I started to drink when I was seven. Oh, my. Yeah. And so, and then, you, you know, of course, they're dealing with trauma, a traumatic family that they're trying to deal with, maybe sexual abuse, physical abuse, emotional abuse. Oftentimes people have uh, addicted parents, right? Or very dysfunctional parents in some other way, or absent parents. And so they're er- very early on. So if you start to just know, ask yourself, oh, is this person, whether a child, doing something that's inappropriate? that's having some harm, harmful impact on their life. That's a good sort of nutshell guideline to does this person have a problem? Because alcohol and drugs pervade our society. They are everywhere. And we accept a lot of uh, drinking and even using drugs. There's a lot of latitude in the system. There's a lot in how we perceive things. So the first thing is 
starting to say, is there something going on here that really isn't useful for this person or damaging to other people? And even if they don't recognize it themselves at all, and which is very often the case, people are in what we call in psychology pre-contemplation. They, everybody else can see they have a problem, but they can't see that they have a problem whatsoever. So now, say you're a person who can see that somebody in your family has a problem, right? Now, you're probably going to be anxious about telling them something about that because they don't recognize it at all. And we human beings don't like to be confronted with things that we don't, we, the way we don't see ourselves, especially if it's big, right? And you might even probably be angry about what they're doing, right? They're destroying their life, and it's horrible to watch somebody do that. So you have to start to deal with your own resistance to doing that. You have to start first off say, what is scaring me? Uh, I know, um, you know, in my own life, I had somebody in my life come to me uh, when I was in high school, a friend of mine, and say to me, you know, Rich, I, I'm concerned. I'm wondering if I might have a problem with alcohol. This person was about 16. We were about, I was about 17, right? I didn't have a clue about how to diagnose alcohol problem. Looking back, I wish I had said to him, you know, I really don't know, which I did say at the time. I said, I don't really, I don't think so, but I don't really know, you know, but I don't think so. I wish I had said, you know, I don't really know, but let's go talk to somebody who does know, you know, who can help us and I'll go with you. I'll support you in that effort, right? Uh, so you have to, first off, just deal with your own ignorance. And then secondly, deal with any emotional resistance because one one thing for me oftentimes I hear from people is I'm afraid I might lose the relationship if I tell the person you know hey I think you've got an alcohol problem you know or a drug problem I'm afraid they're going to cut me off from their life well the fact is if they keep drinking and drugging you are indeed going to lose your relationship because they're going to be related to the bottle or the needle or the pills and they're not going to be related to you the other fact is that if the earlier on you can address the problem, the better off you are. Because if it's very early on, like perhaps with my friend when I was in high school, if I said, yeah, I think you do, or let's go see somebody, fine, and he did, it wouldn't, you know, because five years, two, three, four, five years later, the person's brain has changed. That brain is now, uh, the drug or alcohol has got, is choking the life out of the brain. The per person is desperate for the drug or alcohol. And it is so much harder to stop. Like I was on the way here today, I was thinking of a good analogy that everyday people could relate to about this. Like uh, most people drink coffee or a lot of people drink coffee. If I said to you, okay, uh, you got you to stop drinking coffee because it's doing bad things to you, right? And <clears throat> you would be like, wow, that really? Stop drinking coffee I, every day. What am I going to do, right? Now, put on top of that, if you thought, yeah, if I'm going to stop drinking coffee, I'm going to feel like I'm dying for weeks. I'm going to feel like I have the flu tonight. And I'm going to know if I have a drink of coffee, I'm going to feel better instantly. Well, that's what it's like to start getting rid of alcohol or drugs if you're addicted. You're going to feel like you're on the edge of death, you know. So you have to deal with Now, of course, good addiction folks can help you deal with those things with medications, et cetera, so you don't have that dreadful experience. But you, you'll be afraid that that's going to happen. Absolutely. If you're just joining us, you're listening to Upstate's HealthLink on air. I'm Linda Cohen along with psychologist Dr. Rich O'Neill. We're talking about drug and alcohol addiction and what families can do to help. So you mentioned earlier that, you know, with some children drinking very young because maybe the family itself is dysfunctional. So yes. But what if it's not quite as extreme as that? But there's yeah. but there is a family history. Let's yeah. say you're noticing your son, your young son, is showing some signs of potential drug or alcohol addiction, and your father yeah. was an alcoholic. Yeah. I mean, how does that complicate or how does that impact on the, the family's ability to a either embrace the you know the need to intervene? or their ability to intervene. Yeah, well, you're, if you have a family history, first off, you might be much less likely to be able to recognize it because the norm in the family is everybody drinks. This is just normal, right? This is the way adults are. 
You know, oh, yeah, when I was in high school, yeah, I used to get blotto, you know, and drink. And uh, that's what everybody, and, and to some extent, that's true. That's the culture in high school. But so you have to be able to step outside the norm. And oftentimes that's difficult in and of itself. But then families get confronted with problems like, so if you've got a, uh, say some, now it's very, very common, unfortunately, for people to be addicted to heroin because of the prescription opioid problem epidemic we have in the country. So, but there, say you have a daughter or a son who's addicted to heroin, right? Now what do you do? Okay, so you have this hor these horrible dilemmas people come in my office and tell me about, like, oh, my daughter's addicted to heroin. I refuse to give her money. Now what she's doing is prostituting herself to get the money to do the drugs, and then she wants me to pick her up from the motel where she just earned some money to get the drugs. Do I pick her up or do I leave her there? So that, that leads me terrible dilemmas. That absolutely have. leads me to the next question. Yeah. And that's really I mean, really what we're trying to get our arms around is what do people do? What is enabling? And what does it exactly mean and how do we stop doing that? Because yeah. it sounds to me like that kind of boundary setting or that kind of behavior is crucial for families to understand. Yeah. Uh, enabling is doing, in my definition, doing anything that supports the person continuing to do the alcohol or drugs, right? They, they have an alcohol or drug problem. Now, that said, that is much easier said than done. So you can say, well, am I going to turn my daughter into the police because she's shooting up heroin in my house? Right? Am I going to send her to jail? That's a very difficult question to answer. Uh, for me, uh, the, the tipping point for me was with my friend that I was telling you about from high school. He became a very, very, very serious alcoholic, multiple DWIs, multiple hospitalizations for car crashes. And I was tortured. I did everything I could to, you know, rational talk to him, tell him, you know, hey, what are you doing? You know, you know, wh wh let's see if we can stop this. How come you're, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Never gave him money, never gave him rides, never did anything like that, which all would be enabling, right? Uh, and I, I was just tortured. And finally, I understood at a certain point, I had to get to the point where I realized he was going to die if he continued this. It was going to just be a matter of time. Either he's going to die of cirrhosis of the liver or he's going to die of, you know, which was already starting to develop like 20 years in, you know, or he was going to have a car crash or he was going to whatever, right? There was going to be some accident or something. And at the point when I realized I had absolutely no control, there was nothing I could do, talk to him, give him money, not give him money, argue with him, yell at him, hug him, tell him I loved him. It, it was nothing. When I accepted the fact that I was totally powerless, totally helpless, and that probably he was going to die, then I felt free myself. And all I could do at that point was, at one point I told him that. He and I were having a talk about he was drunk or, or had been recently drunk. Don't talk to the person while they're drunk, by the way, because it's not going to work. Or, or talk to him if you want to some other time. But, and finally I said to him, you know, I love you very much. I can see your alcohol and drugs by that time too. Your alcohol and drug problem is just absolutely ruining your life. And I've accepted the fact that you're probably going to die soon, that I'm going to have to go well, to your funeral. But that frees you, but that doesn't help the person. So, Well, I don't know if that's true, Linda. Well, that's what I, I was going to ask you. So as long as you are in the what I call the illusion of a relationship with the person, where they are still arguing with you, that allows them to think the problem is between you and them rather than the problem is between them and their alcohol and drugs. So I don't want to run out of time. Yeah. So how, do you, how does that relate to this whole concept of tough love then? So what is tough love? Is that basically well, I, saying, I don't, know how I don't define that, love you anymore, I can't no, no, deal no, no, with no, you no, anymore? No, no, no. For me, it would be, in my, my life, it would be, I still love you, and I'm accepting the fact that you're on a path probably to a very early death. And I'll be here in any way I can to support you in stopping that. 
but I'm not going to participate in any way in supporting you and continuing that. So, so what does seem to work? I mean, you know, they talk about interventions, they talk about the whole family. There's no real evidence that they're, that they're good that they work. There's, there's a lot of controversy about those. So just because I don't so want to run out, out of time. We know AA works, and we know NA works, and we know treatment works. It may take multiple attempts, may take multiple tries at treatment. It's like by the time you get to somebody who is seriously addicted, their brain has been ravaged by it, and it may take multiple times. You have to, may deal, have to deal with relapses, multiple relapses. Uh, but all of those things work. But what does the family need to do? Uh, well, stand get, by and get, just say this is what's going to happen get, to you. Get well. That's one thing you can do. Well, you can say, but you can say, I love you. I'll support you. I want to work with you to get you into treatment. I'll do anything I can that, to help you with that. I'll be glad to drive you there. I'll be glad to take you to your appointments. I'll be glad to, uh, you know, do whatever I can to support your treatment. Uh, you can call me any time, day or night, if you're at the, that point where you're about to pick up the drink or the needle or the pills or whatever, you can call me, right? You, and I'll be there to, to be with you to help you stop that. And that's basically it. That's the, it's up to the other person. At ultimately. That point, ultimately, get out of the illusion that you can do something. They have to do it. I'm going to leave it right there. Yeah. That's very poignant and unfortunately very true. My guest has been psychologist Dr. Rich O'Neill. He's a psychologist in the Department of Psychiatry at Upstate Medical University. Next up, a landmark research effort into Alzheimer's disease. You're listening to Upstate's HealthLink on Air. Upstate's HealthLink on air. Linda Cohen here along with you. Well, an estimated 5.3 million Americans of all ages have Alzheimer's disease in 2015, and it now ranks as the sixth cause of death in the United States. Research into the causes and possible cures for this disease are crucial. And joining us from his office in San Francisco to discuss his role in this all-important research is Dr. Michael Weiner, a professor of radiology and biomedical imaging, medicine, psychiatry, and neurology at the University of California, San Francisco. Welcome, Dr. Weiner. Thanks so much for joining us. Happy to be here. So I understand that currently you are the principal investigator of the Alzheimer's Disease Neuroimaging Initiative, which is the largest observational study in the world concerning Alzheimer's disease. Well, I mean, things really have changed in the area of neurodegenerative disease research since your days as a medical student here at Upstate Medical University. Tell us a little bit about this study or this project and also about your journey and what led you to this kind of research? Sure. Well, 50 years ago, I was just graduating and received my uh, medical degree at Upstate Medical Center in Syracuse, and it was there that I really developed a strong interest in doing scientific research uh, because I realized that a doctor who takes care of patients has an impact on those patients, but by doing research, one can have a greater impact on the population if one can help find a better way to diagnose or treat a disease. So I decided to go into research, and I had many different projects. And then about 35 years ago, I learned about something which became MRI. And I was fortunate to become one of the doctors who very early on started using MRI and experimenting with it, trying to figure out what you could do with MRI. And then about 25 years ago, I decided to focus on Alzheimer's disease to use MRI for the diagnosis. And uh, since that time, the field of Alzheimer's has become very important and very impactful because the population is getting older and millions of people have Alzheimer's and the rate of growth of this disease is huge. And currently, as everybody knows, there really is no treatment for Alzheimer's disease, which is the major cause of dementia. So, the, about, about 10 years ago, uh, it was clear that uh, treatments that might slow the course of Alzheimer's disease were being developed, 
but we needed better ways to diagnose the patient. And I conceived of this project called the Alzheimer's Disease Neuroimaging Initiative, or ADNI, as a way of standardizing and optimizing various diagnostic tests, including MRIs and PET scans and other kinds of tests. And so we've enrolled over a 1,000 subjects across the country, and they get all kinds of tests, and we follow people longitudinally. Uh, we study normal, healthy elders in their 70s and 80s, people with mild impairments, and people with dementia due to Alzheimer's disease. So what exactly are you looking for using the MRI? And you're using the MRI in PET as well. What are you looking for? What are you finding? Is, the, is it an effort mostly for diagnosis, or is there something beyond that? The overall goal is to optimize what we call biomarkers, which would include MRI and PET, blood tests, and other kinds of tests, for use in clinical trials to determine the effectiveness of treatments for Alzheimer's disease. So when you do a clinical study with a new treatment to see if it helps people, you need to identify people who are at risk for the disease. You don't want to treat people who don't have Alzheimer's disease. You only want to treat people who really have the Alzheimer's process going on in their brain. And you can't detect that just by talking to somebody. You need to do a scan or some kind of a test to detect the presence of the Alzheimer's pathology in the brain. And what we're doing is trying out a number of different methods that measure the presence of Alzheimer's disease in the brain and determine if these methods predict who's going to decline, have problems with their memory, and ultimately go into dementia. Because it's those people who are at risk to decline who you want to treat to prevent their decline. Are you also doing, um, are you also using these same measures or same methods to do monitoring of treatment over time? Exactly. We use the methods when the people come into the study, and I should say that I'm a patient myself. I'm a volunteer in the study because we need normal, healthy people in the study as well as people with dementia and people with memory problems. We study people at what we call baseline. That is the first, the first time they come. And then every year people come back and we follow them as long as possible. I've myself been in this study for more than 10 years. So every year I go to the clinic and I have an MRI scan and a PET scan. I have all kinds of tests of my memory and how well I can think and so forth. And um, these tests are difficult. And sometimes I wonder, wow, I'm really not uh, remembering as well as I did when I was younger. But that's also something that's just associated with the normal aging process. So. So some of your listeners who are in their 60s or 70s, they, they're noticing that their brains are not quite as sharp as they were when they were in their 20s and 30s, and that's not cause for concern. That's a normal aging process. Alzheimer's disease, though, accelerates that process and starts to cause real problems with day-to-day function. And we need to figure out how we identify those people at the earliest stage possible so they could be enrolled in a study If you're just joining us, you're listening to Upstate's HealthLink on air. I'm Linda Cohen along with neuroradiologist and Alzheimer researcher, Dr. Michael Weiner. We're talking about Alzheimer's disease. So I guess the question is, what are the kinds of things that you're seeing in terms of neuroimaging that says to you, this patient has Alzheimer's disease? The big impact is that it's been known for for it's been known for a century that Alzheimer's disease is caused by two proteins in the brain. One is called amyloid, and it forms as little plaques, little little uh, small areas. And the other is called tau, and it causes something called tangles. And it's the amyloid plaques and the tau tangles that destroy the nerve cells and cause memory problems and cognitive decline and dementia. Now, when a person goes to a doctor with a problem, the doctor can kind of test their memory and see how they're doing, but the doctor can't see into their brain and see this amyloid and tau. The doctor can make a kind of an educated uh, assessment and say, well, I think you've got Alzheimer's disease. But in the past, the only way to really make the diagnosis for certainty would be at autopsy. And, of course, then it's way too late. Now, with PET scans, we can detect the amyloid protein, and we can detect the tau protein. So we can see 
that the person's memory problems are really due to Alzheimer's pathology, or they may be caused by other problems. They may be caused by little strokes. It may be caused by other diseases. Or it may not be a, a serious problem. Maybe the person is just not getting enough sleep or they're depressed. And uh, it's a reversible, uh, reversible problem, not due to Alzheimer's disease. So would the memory problems that you had mentioned to, earlier alluded to in terms of the normal process of aging, there are no amyloids and plaques and tangles to, um, in terms of the normal process of aging. There may be Correct. interruption or problems with your memory, but those findings are what makes this basically a disease entity. Exactly. Normal, as, as we get older, our brains slow down a little bit. It takes us, it takes us longer to, to remember things and to process things. That's a normal process. And forgetting little things about, well, where are, did I leave my keys or, gee, uh, which, uh, which level in the parking garage that I park my car, this is all part of normal aging. When people start to have a progressive problem, in which you can see from one year to the next it's really getting worse, and you really start to get worried, and that's associated with the amyloid in the tau. Um, at this point, are the, those amyloids and the, and, and the tau that you mentioned, are those also present in some other forms of dementia, or is it pretty much limited to Alzheimer's? Well, Alzheimer's disease is associated with amyloid and tau. There are other problems which are associated with just tau alone, uh, you might have heard of this problem that's being picked up in football players uh, called chronic traumatic encephalopathy, or yeah. TTE. Mm -hmm. that's, a, that's a disease associated with tau uh, that's associated with traumatic brain injury and concussions. Uh, so there are, and there are other diseases, uh, such as something called frontotemporal dementia, which is caused by tau. And there are other proteins. There's a protein called alpha-synuclein, which is, uh, causes Parkinson's disease, for example. So there are a whole host of different proteins that cause different diseases in the brain, but by far the most common one is Alzheimer's associated with amyloid and tau. Is the hope that what, you've, what you begin to find now over time will actually then affect not only treatment but prevention? Yes. The uh, emphasis in our field is more and more going towards trying to do prevention. And in order to do prevention, you need to do several things. First of all, you need to identify who is at risk and who is not at risk. Because the, the treatments for prevention are probably going to be expensive, and you certainly don't want to treat everybody because there will probably be side effects associated with the treatments as well. So you want to identify people who are at risk, and that's where a better diagnosis comes in, and that's where the PET scanning of amyloid comes in. Um, the... Uh, but right now, most clinical trials are aimed at symptomatic subjects, subjects who have dementia or subjects who have mild cognitive impairment, sometimes called MCI, which is an early stage of dementia, you could say. Uh, and we are also starting some prevention trials. There's uh, at least one major prevention trial going on in the United States right now called A4, going on in about 100 different centers in the United States. And that's in its early stages. It'll take several years. What are that's they, where we're going. What are they doing in those prevention trials? In that prevention trial, they're giving an antibody against amyloid. I so see. It's, a, it's a protein uh, that is attacks amyloid and pulls amyloid out of the brain. Now, there is a lot of interest in whether or not you could prevent Alzheimer's disease by, let's say, doing more exercise or by exercising your brain more, by playing games or by doing challenging things or by diet, by taking more fish oil or vitamins. And there is some uh, very, very limited evidence that doing these things uh, prevents Alzheimer's disease. But the evidence is really weak. Alzheimer's disease is a hereditary disorder. Uh, not always hereditary, but it is very hereditary. If you have a parent or two parents or grandparents, with a history of Alzheimer's disease, you're more likely to have it. So we know that there are genes for Alzheimer's disease. We can measure those genes, and we can see who's at risk. There are some people, though, who don't seem to have a family history, and they don't seem to have the genes, and they get Alzheimer's as well. So it's, it's complicated. But the hope and is... And it's a huge challenge. Oh, 
Yeah, it's a huge challenge, I guess. In the little bit of time we have left, the hope is that through these kinds of studies, both in terms of monitoring treatments, ongoing treatments today, and also being able to um, basically identify the people who would be at risk, that you can begin to target more closely what the cause is potentially and the cure could be. Exactly. Exactly. Do you think think that you'll find a cure in your lifetime? Or there will be a cure? I think that there will be effective treatments developed in my lifetime. I think there will be effective treatments developed within the next decade. I'm quite optimistic about that. We are seeing some early signs of some effective treatments right now, but they need to be established with very large studies. And these, I should just say, these studies cost sometimes $150 million to do these big studies. So it's very, very expensive. The pharmaceutical companies make huge investments try these things out, and sometimes they fail. We've, we've had a lot of failed trials. You're involved with one other project I want you to mention before we have to close, and that's the Brain Health Registry. Tell us what it is and why is it important. The big problem, as I mentioned, is to identify people early on. And probably one of the best ways to identify somebody early is to track them longitudinally. That is, to have somebody come back year after year after year and take some tests and see if there's any change. And, of course, this could be very expensive if we ask everybody to come into a clinic and get evaluated every year. So uh, we thought that we could try to figure out a way to do this at a very low cost by using a website. And we set this thing up called the Brain Health Registry. Brain Health Registry. And anybody can go there. I hope your listeners will go to their computers or their mobile devices or their iPads or whatever and look up Brain Health Registry and sign on. It's very, it doesn't cost anything. It's very easy. It's simple. You sign on. You get a password. Your privacy is protected. We ask questions about your health and about your family history. And then there are some tests that are kind of like games. But they're tests of your memory and other functions of your brain. And that gives us some information about how well you're doing. And then in six months, you'll get an email from us saying, please come back to the Brain Health Registry. It's time for a little follow-up visit. And we only ask for about a half an hour of somebody's time a few times a year. We've got 30,000 people enrolled already, and we're really uh, ambitious. We want to enroll millions of people and track them longitudinally, that is, over time. And we think that we will see that some people are going to start to decline And those are the people who we'd like to bring into clinical trials because we think that if somebody, even if they're completely normal, if they have no complaints, if they're starting to show some decline or some change in their uh, uh, neuropsychological functioning, that they may be at the very earliest stage. And that's just when you want to intervene prevent them from getting worse and ultimately developing dementia. Well, it all sounds incredibly promising and hopeful, and I laud you for these efforts. I think um, especially as the boomers are aging and the population continues to live longer, we would like to do so in a kind of, you know, with our with our full cognition, <laughs> if possible. Exactly. exactly. This is something that we all, that is the whole population, needs to get together. Uh, the doctors can't do this on their own. We need people to volunteer join projects, get involved in research. It's very safe. Uh, Privacy is protected. And uh, it's a way of giving back a little bit. And especially if we have uh, family members or friends who have dementia or have uh, problems with memory, we can all see the problem and we need to get it solved. And it's very exciting to be working in this area. Very exciting to hear all about it. Thank you so much for your time and your efforts. So it's the Brain Health Registry. People can go online and find it. And I wish you all the best with this research. It's very exciting. Thank you for your thank, time. My guest thank, has been thank you. my guest has been Dr. Michael Weiner. He's a professor in radiology and biomedical imaging, medicine, psychiatry, and neurology at the University of California, San Francisco. And now, Deirdre Nealon, editor of Upstate Medical University's literary and visual arts journal, The Healing Muse, with this week's selection. Thank you, Linda. 
Poet and professor Catherine Haug Mann from Ithaca, New York, takes the story of the princess Sleeping Beauty and puts a different spin, pun intended, on it in her lovely sonnet, Beauty. To stay in bed and dream a hundred years, I understand the need for such deep peace, the soul's full sojourn in a place where tears recede and memory finds sweet release. To raise a thorny hedge along the wall of self and turn away from the world, not miss supposed splendors, but rejoice in all heart solitude beyond a prince's kiss. Most weavers' threads praise union, tapestry of love as otherness, a castle room where bright-eyed courtiers dance and laugh. To be aloof is to be lost upon the loom. I spin another story, life alone, where roses overgrow the golden throne. Thank you for joining us for HealthLink on Air, brought to you each week by Upstate Medical University in Syracuse, New York. Please join us again next week when we learn how paramedics offer guidance to National Geo's project, The Great Human Race, plus the two faces of hypertension, and some cancer research on the cutting edge. If you'd like to listen again to this week's show, you can find a podcast of it on iTunes. Just search for HealthLink on Air. Now that's all one word. And if you'd like to keep up with all the goings on at Upstate, you can look for us on Facebook, you can follow us on Twitter, or you can check out the What's Up at Upstate blog. That's at upstate.edu slash what's up. I'm Linda Cohen. Thanks for listening. <laughs>